Good morning, Journey. So awesome to see every one of you. Uh, you know what I collect? I collect really cool friends. And I've actually got one of my, a piece of my collection here with me today, Kate Forrest. Uh, probably about 15 plus years ago when we were much younger, uh, we attended a church before Journey was even a church. And that's where I first got to know Kate. And uh, she shared her story at an Easter celebration. And uh, I asked her to come and share that story to college students. And uh, she's just been used by God in the lives of so many people. Uh, I've asked her to come here today to share with us. So I'm excited to introduce my very good friend, Kate Forrest. Thank I'm Kate, and I collect old things, old doors, old windows, old memories. In fact, take this microphone here. It's a 1940 M315 Sure Ribbon microphone. Okay, it came from the very first factory that made these, and Johnny Carson used one like it. But the reason why I like it so much is because it belonged to my grandfather's family. Let me introduce you to my family. This is my husband, Chris, he collects gear. Then there's Jack, he collects rocks. Annie, she collects shoes. Next, there's Charlie, and he collects bruises. Then we have our youngest, Ellie, and she collects artwork. Oh, and don't forget Judah. Judah collects other dogs' toys. <laughs> the title of my message is called Captain. Watch this three-minute video from the movie Dead Poet Society. What is poetry? That page has been ripped out, sir. Well, if I were somebody else's book. They're all ripped out, sir. <laughs> what do you mean they're all ripped out? Sir, we... Uh, Never mind. Read. Understanding Poetry by Dr. J. Evans Pritchard, Ph.D. To fully understand poetry, we must first be fluent with its meter, rhyme, and figures of speech. Then ask two questions. One, how artfully has the objective of the poem been rendered? And two, how important is that objective? Question one rates the poem's perfection. Question two rates its importance. And once these questions have been answered, determining the poem's greatness becomes a relatively simple matter. If the poem score for perfection is plotted on the horizontal of a graph... Mr. The Keating, they made everybody Why, sign Anderson? it. <laughs> you got to believe me, it's true. I do believe you, Tom. Leave, Mr. Keating. But it wasn't his fault. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. One more outburst from you or anyone else, and you're out of this school. Leave, Mr. Keating. I said leave, Mr. Keating. Captain, my captain. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. You hear me? Sit down. Sit down. This is your final warning, Anderson. How dare you? You hear me? Oh, Captain, my captain. Mr. Overstreet, I warned you. Sit down. Sit down, all of you. I want you seated. Sit down. Leave, Mr. Keating. 
of makes you want to watch it again, doesn't it? Ever heard of the phrase, I am master of my fate and captain of my soul? It's from a poem called Invictus, and it comes with this idea of believing in yourself and taking control. And this phrase, it resonates with our Western culture, doesn't it? Where we place value on autonomy and freedom of choice and following your dreams. In fact, these words have inspired greatness in people like Nelson Mandela, the South African president while he was in prison. But did you know that these words also inspired Timothy McVeigh, who in 1995 set off a truck bomb that killed 187 people? So is this a mantra we want to live by? I mean, being master and control all sound good, but what about when life happens? What about when you wake up one day to discover that life, school, marriage, parenting, or even the church isn't what you thought it was? And we've all had long days, but when those long days turn into long seasons, some of us, well, we can start to lose hope, melt with fear, and doubt God. So what do you do when everything in your life seems difficult, it seems wrong? Well, this morning, we're gonna meet Joshua, and he's a captain who has a really, really long day. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, oh, how I love you. Um, thank you so much for your word. This, the world will reduce this word down to just a preference, but Father God, it is... It is radical, it is relevant, it is ultimate, it's absolute, and it's authoritative. I pray, Father God, that we would be a family who falls in love with your son, Jesus Christ, by knowing what this word says. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to read from Joshua chapter 10. It says, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still, Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nations took vengeance on their enemies. A few scriptures later, it says, There has never been a day like it before or since. So Joshua is the book of conquest. And what we have here is we have creation and then we have the patriarchs. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then you have the exodus and the desert wandering. And right here at the book of Joshua, well, they're just getting ready to get into the promised land. But God doesn't just give them the land. It will come with miracles and battles. And so in order to help them, he gives them a captain. And his name is Joshua. And you might say that Joshua is on a special ops mission. And the mission is to take the promised land. And we're going to see that this Joshua, well, he does the right thing, and yet he's going to have consequences. He's lied to, and he's asked to fight somebody else's battle. But as this faithful captain, he's going to display three important characteristics. And so I want you to think of ops, special ops, and it'll help you remember what those characteristics are. We're going to see that Joshua obeyed, Joshua prayed, and Joshua stayed. But first, what happened that led up to this incredible prayer of make the sun stand still? I mean, what happened in the beginning of his day? 
How did it start? And who is this Joshua? Well, Joshua was born into slavery in Egypt. And so as a young man, he would have ran for his life from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He would have watched God part the Red Sea. And he might have even at the other side looked back and saw the waters come crashing down on his enemies. I mean, Joshua knew what it was like to be rescued. He was one of 12 people chosen to go into the promised land. And he was one of only two people that believed God could do what he said he could do. But because the other 10 didn't have faith, Joshua would be stuck wandering in the desert for 40 years until everyone 20 years and older had died. And doesn't it make you wonder? 40 years eating manna. Did he think about those luscious grapes that he saw? Or did that promise of the milk and honey keep him going? Joshua was Moses' aide. He was his right-hand man. That means he was right there to see how Moses led, how he prayed, how he trusted God. But he also would have watched Moses hit that rock in anger, and he would have seen the consequences that came from that. Joshua would have learned from Moses' mistakes. Now, as soon as um, the very first thing that they do when they go into the promised land is they fight Jericho. And you know that Joshua must have taken some flack for his battle plan because he tells his soldiers, he says, here's our plan. We're going to march around Jericho seven times and then we're going to blow a trumpet And you can just see the soldiers going, okay, and then what? (laughs) And Joshua goes, that's it. That's all I got. Yet Joshua was the type of person that these soldiers said, okay, we're in. And they followed their captain. And the walls came down. And God did what he said he could do. Now, everyone in the land hears about this miracle at Jericho, and it it has two responses. The first response is of these five kings, and they say, you know what? Let's pool our resources. I think we can fight Joshua and win. But the other response was the response of the Gibeonites. Now, the Gibeonites, they were like, did you see what he did in Jericho? We can't fight their God. And so the Gibeonites say, well, I think we might be able to trick him. And so they resort to a ruse. And they dress up in these old clothes and stale bread and they come up to Joshua and they say, we're from far, far away. We're foreigners. Will you sign this peace treaty? And you know, it's the first time in scripture where it says, and Joshua didn't inquire of the Lord. He signs the peace treaty. Can you imagine what he felt when three days later he discovers that they're not foreigners, they're his Neighbors, And not only are they his neighbors, they're his enemies. He's been lied to. I mean, what do you do when you've been lied to? Well, we see here in Joshua that he fears God more than he wants revenge. And so Joshua does the right thing. He spares the Gibeonites' lives and he makes them their servants. Now, not much longer, the Gibeonites, they call up and you're like, remember the peace treaty? Well, we got these five kings that want to come attack us. And they say, come quickly, rescue us. The people who just lied to you now need you? What would you do? 
Well, that's where we see our first point today of Joshua. Joshua obeys even when it doesn't make sense. So what Joshua does is he gathers his army and it leaves, they leave in the middle of night. And scripture records they travel 26 miles at a 4,000 foot elevation gain. So you know what that's like? That would be like if Bob calls you at midnight tonight and says, hey, let's go hike the M five times. How many of you would hang up on Bob? <laughs> but these soldiers don't hang up on Joshua. They follow their captain, they keep their eyes on him and they say, all right. And so they hike 26 miles at a 4,000 foot elevation. And you know what? They go to fight somebody else's battle. And the surprise attack works. The enemy retreats. Now you think Joshua could go home, right? He's fulfilled his commitment and his word. The threat is off. But it says he chases after him. Don't you love that spirit? And then verse 11, it says, God hurled down hell and more of the enemy was killed that day by hell than by the sword. Our God commands the hell. We see where Joshua obeys. Next we see where Joshua prays. Okay, we're finally to this point where he prays this crazy prayer of, Lord, let the sun stand still. He prays big, even when it makes God laugh out loud. And why is this important? Because Joshua understood his enemy. Do you know that the Canaanites worshiped the sun? So when Joshua says, make the sun stand still, he's sending a very specific message to his enemies. He's saying, my God, Elohim, the God of all gods, he's stronger, bigger, more powerful than your little sun God. That's our God. He prays the kind of prayers that makes God laugh out loud. How big are your prayers? Do you have outrageous prayers? I'll share one of my outrageous prayers. So I'm a twin, and I wanted to have twins. So every time we were pregnant and we would go to that ultrasound and it would show one baby, I would say, Lord, put another baby in there. <laughs> and you know, not only did I know that God could do it, but I couldn't wait to see my husband's face when it happened. <laughs> Pray outrageous prayers, the kind that make God laugh out loud. Finally, we see Joshua stayed. Joshua stayed even when it got tough. He didn't shrink back from the battle. He could have retreated, but we see that he stays to finish the fight, to finish the battle. Now, if I'm Joshua and I've been up since midnight, I've hiked 26 miles at a 4,000 foot elevation. I've fought a battle. I fought a battle in Hailstone. I'm tired. I'm hungry. I just want to go home. I want the battle to be over. But Joshua doesn't pray for the battle to be over. He doesn't pray for more hell, even though that worked. He prays for the sun to stand still. He prays for more light so he can keep on fighting. I don't know about you, but most times, I just want the battle to be over between the kids. I just want the battle to be over with that difficult relationship or that temptation. Do you pray for God to change your circumstances? Or do you pray more for God to give you strength in those circumstances? This phrase, 
give me more light so I can keep on fighting had significant um, impact on me nine years ago. We had three beautiful babies and I wanted more. My husband didn't and so we were stuck. And so we got good counsel though and they said wait until you're, you're united in this decision. And so we waited. But while we waited, I prayed. And I prayed every day. And I don't know if any of you know about the baby ache, but that's what I began to call it. It's that deep ache inside of you that never goes away and it hurts. And so I began to pray, Lord, either change my heart or change my womb, but please don't leave me here. It hurts. And I prayed. And then eventually my prayers became, well, Lord, if this deep ache is what draws me to you, then so be it. And I was okay with it. And then God did a miracle. He changed my husband's heart. And so we got pregnant. And I was so happy. I called everybody I knew. And I'm like, I prayed for three years. And God answered my prayers. We're going to have a baby. And I was so happy. And then my happiness ended in a miscarriage. It was midnight and it was raining hard. I was by myself and I was out of town. And I wanted to ask, why? Why, Lord? And instead I said, but I trust you. Will you give me more light so I can keep on fighting? Will you you give me more light so that I can keep on trying? And then we got pregnant with Ellie. And we called her that name Ellie because I like that name. But do you know that I found out later that Eliana in Hebrew means he listens. Do you know that he listened to me for three years as I cried over this baby ache? And he cried with me in that car during that storm. And then he answered my prayers for more strength so I could keep on trying. And what I take away from this experience is that everything in your life can be difficult. Everything in your life can be wrong but your soul can be right. Here's a picture of uh, stained glass. This is our faithful Captain Joshua. And we could recap this morning. We could say that Joshua took over the promised land and in that we saw where he obeyed and he prayed and he stayed. And we could probably end there. Those are good thoughts. But if we did that, we'd be missing the point. What if the story has deeper meaning? I mean, what if instead of Joshua being somebody that we're called to to be like, strong and courageous, somebody who obeys, prays, and stays, what if we're not more like the Gibeonites, people who need to be rescued, who never go to battle, cowardly, deceptive, recipients of a victory from a battle that we never fought but we started? And what if Joshua isn't a picture of Jesus, a better, truer, greater captain who doesn't just lead us into a physical promised land, 
He leads us into a spiritual, ultimate, eternal promised land, heaven. Did you know that Joshua means the Lord saves? And so does the name Jesus. It's why in Matthew, the angel tells Mary and Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I mean, what if this story, what if this book isn't about what we are supposed to do, obey, pray, and stay, but what if this story in this book is more about what Jesus has already done? What if the answer to our problems is not a new set of circumstances, but just a new captain? You see, we were never meant to be captain of our souls. We were made by God for God and to need God. We were never meant to be self-sufficient. Jesus is captain, Elohim, the God of all gods, the God who parts the sea, commands the hail, gives sun, the per, sun permission to rise. I mean, even the waves and the wind still know his name. We started out today with that line from that poem, Invictus. And this word Invictus, it means unconquerable. It's where we get the English word invincible. If you only get one thing today, get this. There is only one who is unconquerable, and his name is Jesus. And there is only one who is invincible. Death and Satan could not win. And Jesus, he didn't just obey. He obeyed for us until the point of death. And he didn't just pray. He prayed for us until he sweat blood. And he stayed. He stayed on that cross until Every sin, every mistake you and I have made or will make was paid for and death had been dealt with. He could have called a legion of angels to rescue him at any time, but he didn't. He stayed on that cross until he uttered the words, it is finished. And because Jesus did not shrink back from the cross, when we look to him to be our captain, when we keep our eyes on him, we don't have to shrink back from our trials. Hebrews 10, 39 says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Because the fact of the matter is, until we see who Joshua points to, until we keep our eyes on that captain, we will never be able to become like Joshua, someone who obeys even when it doesn't make sense who prays even when it makes God laugh out loud, or who stays even when it gets tough. In 1875, William Henley wrote that poem, Invictus. And he penned those words, I am master of my fate and captain of my soul, while being treated for tuberculosis in the hospital. And he believed in himself. But despite being master of his fate, do you want to know what happened to him? He fell from a railway carriage and died a year later at age 53. Now during the same time frame, Charles Spurgeon, a British preacher, he preached another philosophy on life. Listen to his words. Every person must serve somebody. We have no choice as to that fact. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it. 
You will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or saviour. You will find sin, self, Satan and the world to be a hard taskmaster. But if you wear the uniform of Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest for your soul. If you could see our captain, you would go down on your knees and beg him to let you enter the ranks of those who follow him. It is heaven to serve Christ. I have a mentor who taught me that if the wheels of your life come off, it's probably because of three reasons. One, you've never made Jesus captain of your soul. Or two, you've made Jesus captain of your soul. You just don't know what his word says. Or three, you've made him captain of your soul. You know what his word says and you're just in rebellion. Today, if you're at one of those places and you want to formally declare that Jesus is captain, then I invite you to write that somewhere on your notes page and sign it. I've also given you some questions to think about and share with your small group. And if you have any questions about what that means to, be, um, to have Jesus as your captain, then you can find one of the journey staff to help you with that. Have you made Jesus captain of your soul? The more we know that captain, the more we would get down on our knees and beg to enter the ranks of those who follow him. It is heaven to follow Jesus. I am so thankful the night of my miscarriage that I had a captain to lead me through. Because sooner or later life happens and you're gonna need a captain. And how you get through that storm in life will depend upon which captain you choose. Dead Poets Society, they chose Mr. Keating. William Henley, he chose himself. Joshua, they had, jo or the Israelites had Joshua. Whom will you choose? Jesus is captain. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.